everyone and welcome back to Music Works. Today we have a special guest, media composer Mark Gordon. Mark is also the founder of Score Draw Music and is working on the Ivers Academy and Musicians Union's joint campaign, Composers Against Buyouts. In this episode you will hear what a buyout is, um, details of fair composition fees and what they entail, the importance of legacy revenue and how to protect yourself and your music by understanding your rights. Soon we'll head over to the Music Works studio where Mark is waiting, but first here is an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians Union. I'm a member of the Musicians Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK. And it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry. As well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit, the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance, and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the MU.org. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Today we are talking to Mark Gordon, media composer and founder of Score Draw Music. Um, so please tell us about yourself, Mark. Um, tell us about your work and your company. Okay. Um, so uh, I think probably like anybody who works in composing uh, for media, we all go on like completely distinct journeys in terms of how we get here. And there are many people who, you know, go and study music composition at Berkeley or kind of learn about it. I was one of those people who was the exact opposite. I was in like, you know, indie rock bands in the mid 90s and doing Peel sessions and touring and kind of doing all that sort of stuff as well. So I was definitely someone who started as being a musician and kind of doing that and wanting to do albums, having the arrogance to think that you know i could do yeah so did that um went around the world a little tiny bit um and as an artist um one of the bands that i was in ended up we had a music publisher who took some of our songs and actually ended up getting them synced to uh, malcolm in the middle which was at that point like a real life version of the simpsons tv show starring brian cranston laterally of breaking bad and then also um Sesame Street as well, um, the beloved kind of children's entertainment property. Um, so that was kind of the first time that <clears throat> music that I had been in any way involved in kind of writing or co-writing had been used in visual media and film and TV. And I suppose, you know, if I reflect on it now, it was one of the, you know, a couple of light bulb moments that I had where I started thinking about the idea of doing a different kind of pathway in music. And in fact, in many ways, touring is less fun than you might imagine if it's a kind of like wet Tuesday in January and you're playing somewhere in the middle of nowhere to 20 people, uh, you know, and then you've got to do the same thing again. It, it sort of starts to look a bit strange and almost a bit kind of like arrogant and egotistical to be pushing on with this stuff, you know, pushing the massive boulder up the hill. So. Um, I started writing music for essentially for kind of local television in Northern Ireland. So I live just outside Belfast. Um, that's where the company is based. And we have a studio in the south of Ireland as well. Um, and started doing that in the mid noughties, really, through a friend who was a presenter on local TV shows. So really like factual television, not even scoring, almost just like doing production music or library music, which I know is something that you're 
looking at at the moment anyway. And then from there, I had a, you know, again, as everybody does, a couple of sliding doors moments where opportunities appeared. I did a short animated film that I co-composed. Actually, the other person who did music for that film was David Holmes, who's a great film and television composer, someone who, you know, I still have a massive amount of admiration for. Um, and then from that, the producers of that were doing a kind of kids TV show for RTE Junior and ABC in Australia. So we had the opportunity to pitch for that. And then it was like, oh, kids TV, that's interesting because instead of just doing like one episode or something, kids TV and especially animation is commissioned in really large kind of tranches. So you would commission 39 episodes or you would commission 52 episodes or you would commission up to 80 episodes. And this is because if you imagine in animation, the way it works is there's so much kind of prep work and kind of designing characters and rigging them and doing animation that I think there's a sweet spot in a production budget where it makes sense to do a large run of episodes. And also, I guess, how kids like, you know, if they like something, they're like, more, 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 more. Um, yeah, the short so that episodes was, as well, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. So I started doing that in about, um, you know, like 2010, 2011. And then from that show, did our first show for Nickelodeon, um, a show called Lily's Riffle Bay that we did with a great producer called Colin Williams and a company that we've ended up doing other work for as well. And actually in that show, one of the big things about that show was I ended up to go to Nashville. Um, I wrote songs that Dolly Parton sang as a guest in an episode, which was, you know, one of those kind of, you know, ridiculous moments of wow. standing in a kind of tiny studio with a guitar teaching Dolly Parton songs that she then went and sang <laughs> for this oh, thing. Wow. And so, I know. And reflecting back in the kind of like 18 year old, version of myself that was sort of you know in love with bands like sonic youth and pavement and teenage fan club and you know the cure and my favorite band of all time and then like 20 years later i'm recording with dolly parton in nashville it's like this is amazing this is the greatest thing ever um so the company's grown so we're now eight people in the company composers sound designers and i suppose at any one time we're working on maybe like four or five different shows we could be working on so at the moment we're working on a show for nickelodeon um which is co-production with a chinese company we're finishing up a show for milkshake for channel five um we're starting a show for rt jr a kid show there we're doing another show for cartoon network and we're doing a show for pbs kids in north america as well so just kind of a busy company of kind of composers and people, songwriters working across a bunch of stuff. And we do other stuff that isn't, you know, children's media. We've done feature documentaries. You know, we've recorded with orchestras for, you know, amazing projects, other projects. But I guess, you know, in my heart, um, the thing, yeah, the thing that we're best known for and the thing we won kind of, you know, World Television Society Northern Ireland Awards or, or whatever is kind of kids, yeah, kids media, children's media. Um, yeah. So that's a very long introduction, no, <laughs> but that's really essentially, that's, that's, that's taking me up to today, uh, talking to you. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, great. And what shows, where would we hear your music? So I suppose, I mean, in, one of the interesting things, and this will probably feed into some of the chat that we have in a minute. One of the interesting things about animation especially within children's media and we've been lucky to do lots of live action children's media as well shows like um million between or uh, which was um cbbc or ted's top 10 for citv or the songs in the secret life of boys for um cbbc as well but in animation um 
and forgive me for kind of stating the obvious um especially with dubbing and international dubbing animation is extremely portable and can kind of go everywhere so in fact we could do a show which we do and you know which you can see now on nickelodeon jr um you know such as deer squad or a show that you can see now on i think amazon amazon prime um which is pinkalicious um which is pbs kids in america or milo which is currently on channel five milkshake um or i think viacom i think internationally i suppose the point i'm making is this stuff kind of once it gets into the ether it sort of goes everywhere <laughs> and it's sometimes because also production companies will will kind of do a show with and they'll have like a first window in the territory uh, and then they could have a second window that was a streamer or an asphalt or an avod um so that you know i i kind of feel like at any point in any country in the world there's a small likelihood that on one of the channels there's probably something playing <laughs> which might have a piece of music that we've written on it because yeah, yeah that's the nature and it's the nature of kind yeah. of animation co-production as well is that animation is not cheap to make and yeah, that will yeah. probably change in the future but all all the shows that we work on are all co-produced across multiple territories anyway so it could be like an australian irish canadian co-production or it could be yeah so the stuff goes everywhere and obviously that also has a relationship to the music and then i guess also like the rights around the music as well yes absolutely great okay uh you've mentioned rights <laughs> so yeah we are here to talk about um the composers against buyouts campaign that is currently um a big priority for the musicians union the ivers academy who are are running it together um and i know that you're involved in that so please do uh tell us about that please Very yes so um so basically um I guess to kind of to spool back, um, I joined uh, the Ivers Academy uh, Media Composer Committee about four or five years ago. So at that stage in the Ivers, there were kind of four committees. Um, one was kind of classical, one was jazz, one was songwriters and kind of co-writers and then one was media composers so on that committee were you know everybody from kind of video game composers um film composers television people like me who worked in animation and it was all about kind of looking at issues that were facing down the composer community um and that's the structure of the Irish has changed very slightly in terms of the fact that there's now a senate and now there's kind of a media composer council but i suppose the kind of the kind of impetus and energy has remained uh, and one of the things that started coming up more and more as a kind of subject was composer buyout so it's probably worth um talking a little bit about how it works if a composer is asked to do a piece of music for a film or television project or a piece of animation so the first thing to say is that composed music there are three types of music that um that kind of exist in visual media there is composed music there is sync and there is production music or library music. And I'm not going to dwell upon the third one because as discussed, there's plenty of other resources that in fact you're creating around production or library music. For sync, the idea would be that I'm in a band as I was in a band and we write a song and we're not writing it to have it used in a montage in Grey's Anatomy or you know, Breaking Bad or, or, or something else. You know, We're writing it because it's a song and we want to write songs, we want to record them, we want to play them live, we want to play 
festivals and be in Radio One or Six Music or whatever. Um, so a sync is a secondary use, and the license that's done for a sync is a non-exclusive license whereby, you know, BBC can use that piece of music in the cafe in EastEnders. And the way that license works is that in some cases there's an upfront fee, in some cases there isn't because it falls under a blanket license. That is a deal between a broadcaster and PRS for music, the performance rights organization in the UK. Uh, and then there's a back-end royalty that is generated by what is called the public performance of that piece of music back towards the artist or towards the co-writers or anybody involved in, let's call it the equity of the songwriting. So for composers and composed music for visual media, things work slightly differently. If you imagine, you know, I didn't wake up today thinking I was gonna write a piece of music and what I really wanted to do was write a piece of music for, you know, a six to eight animated series. I'm commissioned to do that. So someone comes yeah. along with a contract and says, it's 52 episodes. Each episode's 11 minutes long. What we want you to write is the underscore, or it could be the underscore in the titles music, or it could be the underscore in the titles music and episodic songs. Episodic songs could include lyrics, or it could include just the underscore. Da, 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 da. And we're asking you to create this thing, and then we are going to use it in our TV show. So that's a principle that's always existed. What has happened over the last 15 or 20 years especially, and it and it's not coincidental that this has probably happened with the rise of SVOD streaming video on demand, so Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and so on. And also just the sort of explosion in the long tail of media across, you know, film, short film, satellite television, television, is there's more music than ever that's needed. And the content that's being commissioned needs to be more portable than ever, as I was discussing earlier when I talked about animation stuff. Mm. What this has meant in terms of the music rights is that people approaching musicians and approaching composers have started to ask for more rights than ever when it comes to commissioned music. So historically, as my friend, um, Dr. Who composer and former um, media composer, um, committee chief mark ayers would say the rights in the music and the music publishing historically rested as being within the gift of the composer so any situation in which someone was commissioning a composer to do a piece of music for a tv show or whatever that would be a negotiation between the composer and the broadcaster or the composer and the production company making the content for the broadcaster or, or for film television and what has happened is the the nuance in that conversation has been gradually eroded and more and more composers are being expected firstly to assign all their rights, uh, which is basically 100% of the mechanical right and what would be 50% of the PRS or the publishing or the kind of royalty backend generation. So that's that's thing number one. And then thing number two, which is the real kind of existential crisis is companies broadcasters or commissioners who are then asking composers to assign 100% of the right in the PRS the composition so what would be referred to as being the kind of um well yeah the the the, the right that if you sign up to a performance rights organization you're not allowed to grant a third party more than 50% of 
the right to collect royalties for your songwriter um songwriting um or composing or cue composing um so that's that's the real kind of end game that we're staring down at is the idea that there are situations in which composers are giving 100 percent of their publishing away this is both a kind of truly terrible thing to be facing down it also is in conflict with performance rights organization membership because as i said you're you know under the terms if you're a, PR, a prs for music member you know you're not allowed to assign more than 50 percent to a third party but what has happened most recently is that there's a loophole where you can do a thing called a letter of direction which means that you assign your songwriter share as it's called in america and increasingly here as well to a third party the letter of direction as i understand it was created i think i think i think if a composer died or if there was something to do with transferring of rights to a member of family or something like that but this lo this loophole is being exploited in order to have that assignment rest with the production company as opposed to the composer so yes sorry i feel like you want to jump in here <laughs> no i just wanted to um i just wanted to clarify then that what that means is if you if you do um do that and sign away 100% of your rights then you don't own the music anymore and you don't make any money apart from the the initial fee that may or may not have been paid for yes. the music is that right yeah so that's it so so again you know to talk to talk about to talk about fees and stuff as well so again historically it was the case um and it's still you know it, and it's still often the case that the upfront fee so yes composers from media earn money ways earn money from the upfront fee uh, which again will be within the contract so you know i want you to write this show and i'm going to pay you i don't bloody know twenty thousand pounds to do this thing for this tv show and that upfront fee is for creation time it's for studio time session musicians or an orchestra or ensemble mixing mastering so some of that fee should be covering the kind of yeah the time and energy the composer puts into kind of creating uh, and and making the score and then a lot of that fee does go on third party costs like musicians like top line like you know fixers like orchestras and whatnot and then yes the second fee is the is the legacy um revenue that comes from the you know from the public broadcast of that um what what is happening is is kind of one of, of you know one of two things some composers who are doing this style of deal are kind of writing under pseudonyms or there are composers who just don't sign up with a PRO with, you know, PRS or in Ireland, uh, IMRO or in America, BMI or CSAC or ASCAP. Um, because if you don't sign up with a PRO, then you're not under that obligation to retain, you know, the right to collect 50% of your back end royalties. Um, so that's, that's happening as well. And they're obviously, you know, speaking to the production music part of this conversation, there are production music libraries who are offering the same style of deal. So it's a hundred percent backend buyout for media use. They will allow the composer to collect. If I do a piece of production music that is used on, I don't know, whatever, a channel four thing under the terms of that deal, the third party um, production music library will collect all the royalties. However, if I take that same piece of music and put it onto, let's say Spotify or Apple music, I can collect royalties from that. Now, obviously the more compelling, and significant revenue stream is going to be from the media usage. But in my mind, this is just my kind of personal 
completely subjective and based on nothing more than just kind of like instinct is that 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 I, I sometimes feel like that's creating especially for emerging composers that's creating a kind of it's a sort of confusing landscape because it's like no i'm still getting some royalties from something mm. from this music but any media composer will tell you that the you know the significant royalty is the back-end royalty from the public performance so you know the thing being on the television let's say yeah. and and those are the rights that this campaign is seeking to kind of amplify or find ways to try and enshrine and just have like have these conversations um and the final thing i would say is that in terms of the campaign there are two there are two directions in which this campaign is facing and they're very distinct directions but i think it's very important to kind of characterize what they are the first direction that this campaign is facing is towards emerging composers so it is really important that composers coming in either emerge coming into this part of the industry from somewhere else like songwriting or classical composition or scores or jazz or whatever um that they have an, a, a basic understanding of of the rights that they should be expecting within the, the context of of doing a contract like this mm. and then obviously the second direction in which this campaign is facing is towards kind of media producers and broadcasters and people who are commissioning because i think there is a lot of misinformation that exists within that end of the community. You know, oftentimes it's just the case that a that a producer wants to know that they're not going to get sued at a point in the future. Um, so they kind of, you know, they pull out some sort of agreement that their lawyer had in a back drawer from 10 years ago that was, you know, and 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 put together kind of agreements for composers that are maybe just you know, not really fit for purpose, but, but, you know, so it's funny in that I was talking about this because just back from the children's media conference and we had an event there with a bunch of children's media composers. And I was kind of speculating with a composer friend that I actually even think sometimes for people who are commissioning music in, in this manner, I don't even think sometimes they're doing it because it's a big legacy revenue land grab. I think that for some of the people who are looking towards these opportunities it's almost like a tech mindset of you own it but i want to own it and i want to own it in perpetuity and i want to not have to renegotiate i just want to know that these rights yeah. are mine forever which ironically they obviously don't need because they can continue to exploit the repertoire without having to take you know the the right to share of the music that that that's one of the biggest ironies about this and i think it's yeah. it's another piece of misinformation so you know there's so much around there's so much kind of education that we're trying to do around this campaign and the, and the key thing is it all it all boils down to value if if we are not maintaining value under this at a point at which it is the case that fees you know, are becoming more challenging. Every part of this industry is becoming more difficult. And the kind of race to the bottom mentality that if I or one of my composer friends passes up on a contract because we're just not happy with the characterization of the rights or the idea that we might have to give away all of our rights, the worry is, because it's so competitive as a part of the industry, that some person around the corner will go, oh, I'll do it. 
you know, yeah. I'm desperate to get a credit. I'm desperate to get something on my IMDb. So, yeah. so that that's a really, it's a really critical thing. Yeah, it's a huge risk, isn't it? And it go that kind of issue touches on so many elements of the industry that we talk about a lot on this podcast to do with everything, performance fees and um, yes. opportunities and study and so on and so forth. So I've got so many questions, but I'm going to try and <laughs> try and raise <laughs> myself in. But what? So can we just what? So why do people agree? We've just touched on this actually, but why do people agree to buyouts? Why do people agree to these contracts? I think yeah, I mean like. I think that is a really good question. I remember talking to uh, one of the composers. We were looking at this kind of production music library model whereby, um, you know, the composer has no legacy royalty. And at that time, one of the libraries, I'm not really going to name names, but all the information, if you go onto the Ivers website, the Musicians Union website, like we've talked about the companies who have been problematic (laughs) in this area in the last two or three years. So all the information is out there and in the public domain and a part of this campaigning. But one of the th- you know one of the things about these models is some of these models they do give an upfront fee. So if you're writing for some of these production music libraries, you know they could be paying like five hundred pounds a track. And you know you talk to a composer who's working, you know working in a cafe or or whatever who's graduated who can't you know make that jump and they're st- you know and they're being offered you know whatever five hundred pounds a track to to do to do this sort of stuff, but with no further opportunity to collect for kind of, you know, visual media use. And, you know, they will they they will look at those opportunities and they will go, well, that's money for my music. Um, but the thing about once, you know, once you've once you've made those deals and once you've done those deals, there's no way to quantify what the value of that piece of music will be in the future. And there's no sense in terms of what potential opportunities for kind of revenue creation you could have had from that piece of music when when that deal is done it's done and there is no way back and that to me seems a very precarious way to kind of treat the art and the creativity that you're making and it seems like very shaky foundations to try and build a career upon but i suppose what i'm saying is i'm I, I understand why people do it. Yeah, I do. But I think the principle the principle of it, the principle of, you know, intellectual property and copyright in music is not set up to allow that level of exploitation. Mm. You mentioned value before and it uh, so what you've said my experience of, of dealing with this in my line of work as well is that people tend to have a low sense of their own value, particularly at the beginning of careers, and make decisions that are actually really quite based on that. Um, and it might be, it, there might be, it might be in sort of value in a more um, vague sense, but also a, a lack of understanding of the potential value in monetary terms of these royalties, because I think there is a general perception that royalties aren't a significant income stream unless you have your music everywhere on all, you know, unless you have this sort of mythical career that people don't feel like they have, even though they might do very soon, you know, that I think it comes to, yeah. Absolutely. Um, And I think, and I think that is, you know, it's specifically, you know, with media composers, especially, so not people who, not production music composers, with media composers, there is a massive 
issue, a chicken and egg issue about how you start to develop as a media composer. Because what happens is whether you graduate or whether you want to start to move into it or whatever way you try and get into it, um, the kind of the visibility of producers and directors is something that you can kind of face down and kind of you can reach out to people. You know, I, literally, I was just at the Children's Media Conference in Sheffield, which is everybody who works in the kind of kids TV industry in the UK is there. They're all there and they're all like really visible. But yeah. the problem with an emerging media composer is they can meet these people. But the first question they'll be asked is, what have you done? Yeah. And if a composer goes, well, I haven't done anything yet, but I think I'll be really good at doing this. Um, then the producer, you know, who's working with a budget of, you know, whatever, three and a half million on a 52 episode show or something like that is not going to give emerging composers the opportunity. So you then get in a situation where you're stuck, where you can't get credits, but you need credits in order to have more opportunities to do work. And what happens is, I think, with emerging composers sometimes is that, and totally understandably as well, you will look at a much wider range of opportunity in order to start to get credits or credits on short films or credits on online stuff or in credits on like Kickstarter video games or credits on, and the composer is more likely to take a bad deal. I had a composer who once came to me uh, wanting to do an internship or replacement or have a cup of coffee or something. And I went on their website, on the back page of their, on their contact page on their website, it said, because I am a new composer coming into the industry, I'm very happy to work on your project for free. And I had to say to that composer, you have to take that off. Yeah. You have to, because you're, you're devaluing what you can do, but you're also devaluing this for everybody. So, oh, God, so, yeah. <laughs> so, the, so, the, so the tricky, the, the, really, the really tricky thing is, and I think this absolutely does feed into this campaigning, is the idea of, you know, of course, you know, we're, you know, we're in not ivory towers, um, but we, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, nearly, I don't know, you know, 15, 18 years or something. But it's, it's so challenging for emerging composers. And I think, people will take a bad deal over no deal yeah. when they're getting started. And that's hard as well. And so we have to be quite strong about that and ask people to kind of believe that over the arc of 40 years of doing this, if you start from those positions, you're starting from a position which is devaluing the totality of the opportunity. And that's tough. Like I remember telling somebody who was doing a tourism style advert in Northern Ireland where they were being offered no money, but it was going to be quite a big campaign. Uh, and they said to me, what should I do? And I said, you have to ask for a fee. If you don't ask for a fee, they will have a budget line for the music. Yeah. You know, if they've commissioned this campaign, there's a budget line for music. You have to ask for a fee. And if there isn't, if there isn't, there should be. And that's an, it's another thing that composers, we just did a, a, a kind of seminar, a webinar about how to price your music. Mm. And the biggest thing I say about that is if someone's asking you to do music for something, any producer will have a budget line for music. The budget yeah. line exists already. The idea that the producer is saying to the composer, will you let me know how much that is going to cost? The composer has to say to the producer, you know already. <laughs> if you have a budget line for like camera yeah. and voice and talent and post-production and grade and edit and dubbing, you have a line for music. Just tell me what that line is. 
Yeah. But that's so that's I think that kind of it's a slightly wider it's a slightly wider point about emerging composers, but it does feed into it feeds in to the kind of the paradigm as is existing at the moment and and the trend, you know, that that is continuing to kind of yeah, involve this sort of slippage. So I guess that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And then to look at the other side, then the um, the producers, broadcasters, organisations that are issuing these contracts or asking for these contracts. Can we talk a bit more about why they're doing that? Because, you know, you you mentioned before that it's not always a, a grab for rights and it can be for other reasons. I think there's quite a lot to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that it, like that is interesting. And it's funny because, you know, I've, I've been given contracts by production company A uh, and they're exactly the same as another contract I saw like four or five years ago by another production company. I'm like, are people even, are they even like looking at this stuff? Or are they just like, oh, we just, we just want to know that, you know, everything's free and clear and that we won't have to renegotiate or come back to you again. So I think, I think there's, a, I think there is, well, gosh, I was talking about this yesterday with someone about music rights. There is so much misunderstanding within and i you know and i think if you had a film or television or animation producer on here they would say the same thing there's so much work to be done in terms of kind of letting producers know what they need to do in contracting to allow them the opportunity to continue to exploit tv show that has this music in it which is all they want to do all they want to do is they want to know if it's commissioned for BBC Alba. They want to know that they can move it onto an S4, if that you know, onto Amazon Prime. If that it comes up again in the future, and they won't need to renegotiate. If you look at what happened with things like YouTube and streaming, and you know, you can even look at you know, like Derry Girls has a different soundtrack for um, Netflix than it does for Channel Four because obviously Channel Four is blanket license. So you know, I think it's like in Channel Four version one of the tracks, you know, for the big dance thing is Madonna. And then the next Netflix version is take that because it's different licensing, different, you know, ways of doing it. Whereas with other shows, you know, Piggy Blinders, or whatever, they maybe were licensing the music in a different way. So it could allow it to move to a second screen, da, 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 you know, let alone YouTube, let alone different yeah. territories. So there's so much people need to, so producers need to know the kind of classic producer contract for a piece of media is, you know, um, uh, License duration in perpetuity, so for the rest of time. Um, territory these days tends to be the universe, so it used to just be the world, but it's now like you know, so when we're on Mars, you can still kind of watch it. Uh, and then just formats, some aspects of this industry, I know. Really think ahead, don't they? Oh, like... It is, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then formats, what they want to put down now for formats. For uh, media is all formats now and yet to be invented. So that's basically saying if there's a new thing that's like an iPad or a new way to stream something or a new kind of method of kind of consumption of media that hasn't been covered now or doesn't exist now, that in the future there won't be a separate licensed require separate license required to renegotiate the rights for the music to be kind of consumed. On that media, so those, so those things, those things seem to be kind of, you know, increasingly standard as kind of benchmarks. But, um, mm. but it's still that you know, it's still the case that there's so many things about kind of commissioning music and music rights that I think 
you know, we want to believe in the campaign that we can kind of talk about. Um, and it's not only about how you split, you know, and, and like to have conversations about, you know, splitting mechanicals and to have conversations about royalties and writer share and publisher share and to not have these things be presented as kind of fait accompli's. But also, as well as that, in terms of the commissioning of music, you know, to know that if if we're pitching for a show, for somebody that there aren't like 20 other composers that are all pitching and we're all pitching for free and that yeah, it's a genuine yeah. it's a you know and that pitches are being considered in a in, in a genuinely blind way so i was chatting with somebody yesterday about something that we were both pitching for against another you know bunch who are kind of well known by the production company and i was saying you know, I really hope that the pitching was blind. I hope that if if the content was being put in front of everybody, they retitled the content as just pitch one, pitch two, pitch three, as opposed to, you know, scoreboard yeah. music pitch or somebody else pitch. It's incredibly important that, you know, if you're pitching for something, we we're pitching for something else recently and we had to hire a session musician to do vocals, you know, but oftentimes you don't get a pitching fee. So we're, yeah. you know, we're expending creativity and we're expending fees, you know, MU session fees for vocalists in, in advertising. It's more usual that you would get demo fees in other parts of the media. This is almost taken as part of creative. So there's lots of even before the kind of royalties conversation, there's lots of other kind of best practice models. Yeah, that we're hoping that kind of producers, um, production companies and broadcasters can look at to make the whole process more fair and even then at the end of the process as well, with think you know this is another composer against bias. It's not just about bias. You know, we're looking to try and make sure that soundtrack rights are enshrined in contracts to make sure that composers have the opportunity to release soundtracks of their work if the production company or the broadcaster or the SVOD decides to not take up that offer. I mean, soundtracks are such a great thing for composers for showreels, be it a show on Netflix or a show, you know something small, you know, video game soundtracks are great. But again, sometimes these rights are just left on the table or even worse, the rights are kind of taken by the production company, but then not exploited. And then the composer can't release a soundtrack in the same way, you know, for production music, if a composer is assigning rights to a production company for a cure piece of music they've done, and as well as it being used in a TV show, the production music company are using that piece of music in an internal sound library, which happens often. The same kind of conversations we want to kind of encourage people to have, which is that if the production company is not exploiting this music and is not being active in trying to place this music, but it's just sitting withering yeah. on the vine, there should be a right for kind of composers and rights holders. You know, there should be a kind of reversion right to allow composers or rights holders the opportunity to take you know, the value that they have in that uh, equity of, of, you know, asset creation and find other ways to exploit it because there's nothing worse than kind of giving these rights over as part of the delivery of a project, but then feeling like the repertoire isn't being exploited. It's like, mm. well, you asked for these additional rights, but you're not doing yeah. anything with the music. So yeah. I think it's kind of everything about this, you know, is of benefit. It's not just a benefit to the composer. It's actually a benefit to everybody. Um, to make sure that this music, you know, it kind of is given the best opportunity possible to create revenue for all interested parties, not only the composer, but if there is, you know, interest from the production company as well. Mm. But it's that thing whereby, 
as I said, I made that kind of comment about, um, you know, tech and whatnot. I just feel like there is a thing whereby often it's just the case, the mindset of just acquisition and ownership creates this sort of binary, one size fits all, black and white chat, which doesn't need to happen. And it doesn't need to happen for the mobility of the music within the show. Mm. So yeah, this is this is all the kind of stuff that we're sort of talking about and it trying is. to kind of amplify and create energy around um so yes so interesting yeah and i'm so i'm like there is i think there's a real there is a weariness around having to deal with all the legalities of this stuff isn't there and i think that's what i mean i remember we we've dealt with something a while ago in my company that involved um the release of a recording that had been recorded over a decade ago and we needed to go back to all of the musicians and offer them an additional fee and then there was a conversation about whether we needed to do that and then there was a conversation about actually getting in touch with them because it was such a long time ago and they'd been fixed by someone who wasn't in touch you know it is a pain and actually yeah. <laughs> like that is well i say it's a pain it involved a lot of work yep. and so it's it just feels like that work is incredibly important for making sure that everyone has been paid for everything and that actually more clarity over what the impact is of this not happening, which is obviously what the campaigners are aiming to do, must theoretically save that work. Yeah, and, abso ab know. absolutely. Yeah. I, th I, th I think it's, I think that's, yeah, I think that that is a good example. And I think, one of the things in the campaign that we're very, very aware of is the fact that we want we want for everybody for this campaign to be really viewed as a kind of positive thing, because yeah, exactly. this is this is absolutely not about, you know, the idea of kind of composers being really difficult to work with and being really hard about music rights and being it's it's got I, it's not it's not about that. It's about it's about maintaining value under amazing music which is having mm. you know awesome transformative effects on the you know on the media that it's you know kind of in the orbit of or adding value to or kind of being around the thing about you know the thing about composing for media is so many things about composing for media is that um <laughs> it's it's such a highly collaborative process i mean it's the opposite of being a songwriter in many ways because i could like i could write a song right now you know, I'm feeling blue, I'm writing a song, it's da da da, and then stick it onto SoundCloud or whatever, and that's it done. That's the opposite of being a composer. Being a composer for media is I'm composing for you, I do an awesome piece of music, you come back to me and say, Mark, I think that's rubbish, could you do it again? And rather than me going, <laughs> you're fine i'm the musician and you don't know what you're talking about maybe you should listen to it again <laughs> i as the composer have to go oh yeah I'd, I'd i'd love to do it again that sounds brilliant so you know you're you're serving a kind of you're serving the story you're it's you know yeah. all cliches but all totally true you're serving dare i say a higher purpose you know a director a writer a producer an editor cast a story narrative director of photography so you're coming into something which is massively collaborative and has a kind of this big kind of energy towards an end product, which then goes out into the public domain and is consumed. And you're one of the colors in that yeah. rainbow. And Absolutely. so it's so it's about so we're coming from it from a place of massive creativity and collaboration, uh, you know, and, and a collegiate nature to be part of something. And I think in many ways, part of the kind of you know the big thing that is so is so fundamental about this is that 
these these situations of kind of complete bias and stuff speaks so against that thing which is innate within us as media composers which is that we're part of a team and a crew and we're all kind of pushing together and kind of seeking to make something fantastic and awesome and this idea of this kind of like you know sort of damocles falling on the recording and then off it goes never to be seen by the composer again with no legacy royalty no legacy revenue streams mm. it just seems to me to be so kind of like profoundly against the very nature of what we're here to do within projects i think it's just you know if we can kind of continue to sort of articulate that and find people as we do all the time within the industry who really understand that and who value our music and 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 what we bring to the process that's great you know it's not the kind of sledgehammer to crack a nut thing it's a it's a very it's a very dare i say positive um campaign which i think benefits yeah. everybody i think i think you're absolutely right i think there's so much about about value and creativity that's lost if people aren't um aren't valued or aren't or treated as an add-on and all this stuff i did a, a um a really I did an episode of my microcast with a composer called Ella Jarman Pinto the other day where we uh, which I think will be out by the time this is out and it's um it's literally we talk about the the creative process that we went through when she wrote the music for this podcast which lasts 11 seconds and took several weeks not continuously but you know <laughs> <laughs> um, um what I want to ask though and I know that we're coming up on time um yeah. but I just wanted to I've been having a thought as you've been talking are there elements, is music a standalone thing in having this issue with very complicated situation legally and the minute yes. you start putting music to media, all this all this contractual and legal stuff, or are there other elements? Well, do you know, to... it's, it's so funny you should say that because literally I had that thought yesterday, the day before when we were up doing this event, the Children's Media Conference, and I ran into somebody who was a friend of a composer friend that I know um, and he's and he's a writer. Um, and of course, um, we, so we do a show, um, a kid's show in North America, and we do the songs as well as the score. And the song, the lyrics are written by these script writers. Um, and obviously that means that then they have equity in those, you know, they will be registered as a kind of co-author of yeah. that as well. So immediately the first thing I thought was, we should have invited writers down to this event because this is immediately bleeding into kind of issues to do with writers. And if it mm. bleeds into issues to do with writers, then what does it mean for kind of, you know, like character design or, you know, you know, IP on it, you know, cause I know, I know a, a fair amount about how deals are structured within um, media to do with kind of IP creators and then production companies and producers and the fact of the matter is, you know, if you had a great idea for a thing tomorrow, um, I don't know, let's say a children's media thing. So live action, I don't know, magazine show, all about music. Um, there you go. Um, and set in a kind of wacky music house in which in every room there's a different, I don't know, genre of music. And anyway, something something like that. Um, as an IP owner, you, you know, one would assume that kind of, you know, you could go to a producer or go to a broadcaster or something like that and talk about making this show. Um, and the reality of what would happen would be, especially if you took it to one of the bigger, you know, kind of um, producer companies, that they would they would be seeking to kind of essentially buy out those rights. So it's like, yeah, we'll make your show, Katie. That sounds brilliant. But what we're going to do is we're going to offer you a fee. We're going to offer you like a very small percentage 
of back end. Uh, and then we might offer you a kind of right to a creative position on the show or something like that as well. But, you know, you're a brand new super emerging writer. You know, we turn over three billion a year. Yeah. How do you think that conversation is going to end? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so, I, you know, the idea that within the wider creative community, you know, kind of there are parallels to be drawn um, with with this specific campaign is you know is absolutely yeah is definitely something it's definitely something that's happened and continues to happen and there and there continue to be amazing people fighting the good fight there continue to be great ways in which content you know be it music or story or you know video or show, you know can kind of come into the public domain in a way that isn't compromised by going through you know the kind of big filter of of big business but yeah i mean like abs yeah of course absolutely absolutely well, you say absolutely, but it's not massively clear, is it necessarily? Because it, you would, again, you would think, and from my perspective, you would think that this kind of effort that needs to be put into, I mean, I suppose what I'm, I'm putting a bit of my own spin on this here and, and kind of thinking that a lot of the reason why these contracts exist is for ease of working, essentially. So people kind of go, right, I That's want right. some music, I want to buy That's it. Right. And then I don't want to have to think about the rights ever again. I just want it to be That's fine right. and done. And um, and actually, yeah, that touches um, issues of IP and um, and value and different levels of creativity. And I loved your your analogy of being part of the color of the whole thing, um, you know, a line of color. And it, you know, that must be true of all of the elements of these of these um, pieces of work. Um, yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I suppose yeah. specifically specifically with composers and with, and with kind of. It's a terrible expression, like career composers, dare I say. Um, you know, the, I, the idea has always been that over the course of the decades that hopefully you will have the opportunity to make music for myriad different projects and yeah. many different ways. And it's such a kind of ephemeral thing to try and tie down the value of what that creativity will be worth because there's so many variables, you know, the Japanese royalty for this will be this as opposed to the, you know, French royalty for this kind of thing, which delivers this. And, and, and all these, but, but, you know, the kind of energy created by having the stuff in the public domain, generating royalties and opportunity. And, you know, like today is PRS day. Today is the day you can log on to the PRS and see what your quarterly royalty will be. Um, you know, when you remove that breath of, of opportunity for, specifically for a composer who's maybe been decent enough to take the small upfront fee and bring in a couple of session musicians because they want to add more value to what they're trying to do for the thing there's nothing left yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. there's Absolutely. literally there's nothing left it just becomes like you know, it's, you know it's like well I work in the civil service but I you know, occasionally write music for short films yeah yeah oh i feel like we could go on talking about this all day and and we have it and yeah there are things that i haven't asked that i really wanted to but this is uh this has been really really great thank you do you have any cool. kind of final uh final thoughts like what's it you know give us the big message of the campaign what do you want people to take away from this what is the big message from the campaign that is um that is a good question i suppose it's like you know there is a fair established way in which composers come into projects and kind of find, you know, value from working in projects to do with kind of commissioning fees and to do with royalties. 
that paradigm that you know that's existed since time immemorial essentially and the key thing about the campaign is to maintain those basic principles of value going forward within the composing community and to have composers emerging composers especially really kind of maintain the kind of vigilance to to value their own music the music that they're making and that they're bringing into these opportunities in a way that is fair and equitable uh, and then for producers commissioners and broadcasters and people working on the other side of the industry to consider the best practice ways of working with composers for the benefit of everybody and specifically the benefit of the project i think if we can kind of achieve a continued dialogue that faces both of those directions and creates kind of positive energy and conversation um then we'll feel that the campaign continues to have you know tremendous value and then just to maintain kind of vigilance against the sort of mm. nonsense that occasionally seems to pop up <laughs> from people trying to kind of get around these things absolutely thank you so much for all the valuable information you shared with us today mark it is really interesting to question and analyze why composers agree to buyouts and I think you've given us a really great perspective of what these unfair deals might look like to um, early career composers. An upfront fee for your composition might feel like, finally, I'm getting money for my music. But as you said, you can't quantify the value of that music in the future and how many potential revenue creation opportunities you've missed out on signing that deal. It's been a real privilege to have you here and thank you so much for your time and for your mission in guiding composers to a fairer remuneration for their work. Um, listeners, you can read more about uh, Composers Against Buyouts at the Ivers Academy website, um, iversacademy.com, and you can also hear more about Mark's company, Scoredraw Music, at scoredrawmusic.com. Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>